Here's a guest I think you're going to love. Hi, I'm Sylvia Martinez. I'm the co-author of Invent to Learn, Making, Tinkering, and Engineering in the Classroom. Um, in my professional career, I've been an electrical engineer working in aerospace. I have been a video game designer and programmer. Um, I've worked for, I, I was president of Generation Yes, which was a student empowerment through technology nonprofit, similar to Mouse. And uh, right now I'm working as a, as a mentor and principal advisor for the Fabler and Fellows, who are a group of global educators um, working at the edges of fabrication technologies in K-12 schools, uh, propelled by research. And uh, my, my big mission here is to help people understand the possibilities uh, in classrooms around the world when we give kids the opportunity to step up to the plate, do amazing things, and use modern technology. If you've spent any time with the topic of maker education or project-driven learning in the last several years, I bet you know about her book, Invent to Learn which was written with another important figure in this space, Dr. Gary Steger. The book is in its second edition, and while I typically shy away from episodes that serve as commercials, I mention the book in this case because it's become one of the most important learning objects for professionals in the field right now. But that's not how I became a fanboy of Sylvia's. I met her at a conference about a decade ago, and she was one of those major motivating thinking people who enters into your life from afar at first, who speaks in a way that you understand right away, and then invites you into the dialogue, literally in my case. She won't remember it, but I remember that after a talk she gave at that conference, I waited to talk with her, as you do at conferences, and just before I got to her, waiting patiently, she engaged in another conversation with someone in front of me. I knew their name right away. And when Sylvia said hello, it was an academic, someone who I perceived as being bigger than me, more important, more knowing. I'd read their articles in school, for goodness sake. I thought, I'll say hi, but there's no way she wants to talk to tiny me right now. So I introduced myself quietly, suggesting maybe we could catch up later. And then what I never expected, she said, hey, we're going to go upstairs and catch up. You want to join us? I found myself soon after in a room full of people that I had intellectual crushes on. Sylvia on a couch with her shoes off, including me, actually listening, saying things back. Not politely, but passionately, the way she does with everyone else. I felt so at home, valued, honored to be a part of the conversation. I tell the story as an homage to Sylvia in part. But as much as a lesson for others listening who might be at a point in their work where they feel small or self-conscious, maybe in a bubble that feels insignificant or not smart enough to approach, like I have so many times in the past and still do now and then, that you should take what in youth development we call a positive risk and introduce yourself. Lean into people whose ideas you admire and give them a chance to be a mentor, to ignite confidence in your ideas, to urge you to keep at it. There are people out there who care deeply about your work and want to help you succeed. Sylvia was one for me. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Sylvia, thank you for joining the show. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you. Um, 
for uh, lots of reasons. Not least is that uh, it's been a while since we've uh, had a chance to talk, and um, you're somebody who uh, I'm. I'm always, you know, pretty open with guests who come on. Every once in a while, I get lucky and and I'm able to have somebody on who, very frankly, I've seen as a mentor in my work for a very long time. You're one of the first. Um, people who I saw doing this work, who had made a career of these ideas and, um, and that always meant a ton to me. So I've, I've always been a, a fanboy and, uh, and follower. And, uh, now I, you know, this show has been such an amazing excuse to get some of my favorite thinkers in our space, um, onto the mic to have some conversation. And it's always, uh, as, as I'm always very forward about, uh, it's always as much about, I I learn as much from these conversations as I think anybody listening. So, um, so thank you for joining. Well, that's very flattering. Thank you. Um, I, I, I look at you and, and look at the organization that you've, you've headed all these years. And I, I I think it's remarkable. So the, it's a mutual admiration society. (laughs) It's always, that's a good place to start. Um, so, uh, we have so many things to cover in a, in a short amount of time, but, um, where I hope to start is with your beginning in, in your intro, we heard a little bit about the time you've spent in this field and it has been, I think one of the things that impressed me so much early on is, um, you were a young woman doing an engineering degree um, at a time when I don't, I think that, uh, if you look at the numbers, um, I think that the number of young women who are doing, uh, post-secondary education in engineering and computer science, especially, um, were actually doing better at that time than they are now, but they still weren't good. Um, and so, so I kind of wanted to start there and just ask you, uh, what kind of kid were you and how did it lead you to a place where, um, you were able to see yourself at that time as somebody who had a pathway into, uh, engineering and, um, electronics and, and all of the stuff that you were doing at that time. So people often say to me things like, um, oh, you must have had so much self-confidence in being a, 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 an engineer, a girl in engineering. And um, I can tell you that that's kind of the opposite from true. I, it wasn't that I lacked self-confidence. I kind of lacked self-awareness. Um, I was just a, a good student. I was a compliant, quiet kid who did my homework um, and got good grades in pretty much everything. And when it came time to go to college, uh, my dad said, you should talk to your uncle. He's the, was the only one in the family who'd been to college. Um, and I sat down with my uncle and he said, what do you like? I said, I, I like math and science. And, and he said, well, what do you, do you like the textbook kind of problems or real world problems? And I said, I, I kind of like the real world stuff more. And he says, you should be an engineer. And then he got up and left. Hmm. And pretty much that was, <laughs> that, was that was the extent. That was it. You know, and it's like, yeah, I guess I could do this. And um, I applied to UCLA because I could live at home and it was it was close by. And um, I applied to, you know, I applied to Harvey Mudd and to um, and to Caltech. But I, w- I have to say I was a little intimidated by that sort of 
hothouse kind of mentality because I didn't think of myself as highly motivated, highly driven. I didn't dream about being an engineer. Um, I wanted a a college experience. Hmm. And I have to say the UCLA engineering program was was fantastic. And um, at the time, the it, it was still running on the the original engineering uh, dean. Um, his vision was a renaissance engineer. So unlike most other engineering degrees in the country, the UCLA engineering degree was nearly all uh, of the sub majors. You had to take almost all of them. So it didn't matter if you were if you wanted to be an electrical engineer, you had to take bioengineering, you had to take power, you had to take thermodynamics and chemical and materials. And it was fascinating. And honestly, it was more modern. It was it was that modern thought that you have to understand a lot because the world is integrated. The world doesn't compartmentalize projects into this is an electrical engineering problem. We will have an electrical engineering solution. So I found that education very empowering. And um, it, it it was, you know, it was not something that I dreamed about as a little kid. Um, and probably if people were, if the world was giving me signals that girls weren't supposed to do this, I was just not paying attention. Mm. I I was the kid with blinders on. I, I It never occurred to me that I could do something or couldn't do something. Yeah. People say all the time, like, you can do anything. Yeah. I think those messages never reached me. I didn't believe them. Um, I did believe teachers who took the time to talk to me. And that's one of the things when I talk about girls in engineering, I say, it, it, you don't have to be, you don't have to bring an astronaut to say, here's a role model. <laughs> if those people don't have time to sit with the kids and say, what are you working on? What are you thinking about? Let me see that that solution. Let's work on something together. I think internships are extremely important. The early jobs I had were 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 really formative. Um, and the, the, the kinds of engineering I did, um, were, were, were very much on the cutting edge of things. Um, when I went into aerospace, I joined a company that had one of the contracts for the GPS navigation system Mm. back at a time when no one was really sure it would work. I mean, the math was just a theory. The receivers weren't fast enough. The hardware didn't exist. The software wasn't written. The computer chip that we were writing the software for didn't exist either. Mm. And yet it was like, we're all going to do it anyway. Mm. And a lot of people came together with different backgrounds and different subspecialties and figured out problems that had never been figured out before. And in some cases, it reminded me more of my dad's auto shop than the science I'd learned in school. And, you know, so all these lessons that I learned as a working engineer, I, I try and bring to the kinds of things that I, that I work with schools today, um, that, that the science and math that we've set up as in school doesn't often reflect the real world of engineers, uh, in process or in content. Um, real world engineering is highly iterative. It's highly, experimental. You're, you're not working with dependent and independent variables. Um, and yet, you know, we can, you can still invent things that have never existed before. When I went and became on the video game side, I thought, well, this is going to be completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And it was because a lot of the programmers and developers had not had been formally trained as engineers. So they didn't respond well using the same kind of planning and techniques that I was used to. But it was me that had to change because, you know, the, the, I was in charge of musicians and artists for the first time. And it was, it was highly flexible. And yet, the idea that you're doing something that's never been done before was exactly the same mm. as working on navigation software. Um, you can't put out a game that's the same as last year's game. You can't you can't say, well, they did this, so we'll do exactly the same thing, and they were successful, so we'll be successful. And the the programmers working in that industry were solving the same kinds of problems that the engineers in aerospace were solving, and almost always using mathematics. So I'll, I'll, I'll take this one step farther. Mm. Um, you know, when you have a video game system, it has to last for five or years or longer. They don't change the underlying hardware. Mm -hmm. They may, you know, they, and so that means that the software has to get better all by itself. And the only way to do that is with math. By refining the way that you put stuff on the screen, the way you process data, you have to use highly, highly, um, mathematical formulas and digital signal technology pr processing, almost none of which is taught in schools mm. until you get, you know, very high up in engineering. And it's not completely, it's not, you know, so hard that only, t you know, 10 people in the world can do it. Um, but a lot of the engineers I work with in software had been told that they weren't allowed to become engineers or be, or, or take computer science classes in, in high school uh, because they were bad at math. I heard that over and over and over again. And it started me to wonder, which is another question that I think about to this day, is why are we so, um, why, why are we weeding kids out mm. on the basis of formalized mathematics that don't apply to the real world? Why are we throwing away these brilliant, brilliant people? And these, these engineers were some of the best mathematicians I've ever met. And yet, school said, you're not good enough. You can't do this thing that you're passionate about because you're bad at this abstraction that, that we call school math. And so, you know, those kinds of lessons I think about all the time. I think about the engineers I met. I think about the kid I was. I think about the people who were told that they couldn't be engineers and try and bring that all together and, and say that engineering is for everyone. Um, STEM is for everyone. Math is for everyone. School can be a place where you find your passions, not are told that you can't do things. Um, and that, you know, colors everything that I do yeah. to this day. Yeah, I did an episode with not that long ago with a group of researchers at uh, Bank Street College. Um, and they were they were looking specifically at practices mathematics practices um in in k-12 schools and uh one of the professors who'd been researching math education for a very long time uh said exactly what you just did in terms of just feeling like um what 99 percent of people know as mathematics is not actually mathematics at all mm -hmm. um which makes me sad um i wanted to back up um, to something you mentioned your dad, who was a mechanic. Yeah. Um, I've never asked you about what the Martinez, uh, family, you grew up in, in Southern California, right? I grew up in Southern California. I married Martinez. 
So I in the on the book I put Sylvia Lebo Martinez because Lebo is my 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 birth name. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, grew up in Southern California and I uh, was born in Los Angeles. And my father was born in Los Angeles, which wow. for those of you who know, Los Angeles is a city of, of a lot of people who aren't born there. So he um, was born in the in the 20s. I was just thinking about him the other day. He would have been 95 on Sunday. Um, and he was someone who was a self-taught engineer. Yeah. Um, he um, grew up in the depression, and things just had to be fixed. Yeah. You know, you couldn't you couldn't go out and buy new. You had to fix things. So he had four brothers, and they all became welders, auto mechanics, engineers, um, and and one mathematician. My uncle, I I talked about. Um, and you know it was a it, it was a a time for him growing up where he got a lot of practical experience that I think a lot of kids today don't have the opportunity to do. I yeah. mean, his his dad, my grandfather, used said that one time he came home and my dad had disassembled like the family's model model A, model T, whatever it was, and there were parts all over the driveway. Mm-hmm. And he was twelve, you know, and it's like. Kids don't do that these days. Not only don't they do it, you can't do it. So many of the things we we see today are buttoned up. They're these black boxes that you kind of have to just take for granted what's going on inside. And that's part of what I love about the maker movement. It encourages people to open up the black boxes, to own the things that they own. And uh, in doing so, you gain experience that's applicable in lots of different places. Yeah. I was listening to a story this morning about a a very um a really now really wealthy entrepreneur who um spent you know two decades building a company that eventually became um a nutrition company they make like nutrition bars and things um and he was telling the story uh that essentially they were about to go under or were at this sort of critical point inflection point in the in the company's history and um they couldn't afford they they bought all this manufacturing equipment to make make um nutrition bars and they couldn't afford to fix them into the machine they needed um in order to make uh what make food with the ingredients that they were trying to and just when i thought He's going to say he had a friend who was an engineer or something um, to that effect. He said one of our founders was um, was a Midwestern farm boy and uh, who grew up in the, you know, the 50s and 60s in the Midwest. And, and um, you know, he said, I can pull this apart and weld this back together. And I think I can figure out how to make the extruder work this way. Uh, and they did. And that's exact. that was sort of the point where they realized that they could actually build their own equipment. And, and that was part of the success of this business. But, mm-hmm. um, I mentioned that because, uh, I think that some people look at, if you look at the, the title of, um, your book, which is now in its second edition, Invent to Learn. And if you think about all of the the um, the the jargon and the push around STEM education and computer science education right now, I think that people feel in some ways like this is a new thing for American education. Um, and there is something in the fabric of who we are. It's not specifically American by any means, but 
but um, there's something in the fabric of history that is absolutely where all this stuff is rooted, I feel. And I wonder if you feel that way and to what degree you feel like Invent to Learn is a process of coming back to some of those values as opposed to inventing something new. Oh, I completely agree that that um, this is this is a a a backlash against you know a consumerist society where people were feeling like just the world was doing stuff to me and I want to be in charge of of you know my own my own destiny. Um, you know, in the in the introduction to to the first edition, we wrote about. The fact that you see this all over the the rise of the craft movement, the tiny house movement, the slow food movement, the people, you know, why do people knit scarves when you can go to Target and buy a perfectly fine scarf for a mm-hmm. dollar? Well, because I want a scarf that I make, you know, all of these small communities are are built up around people doing things for themselves and and coming together and sharing ideas and working on things together. And I, and that's not new. And I don't think it's American. It's, it's only American. Um, I think around the world, there are cultures who depend on the ability to take, you know, a motorcycle engine and make it work in a boat or a, or a lawnmower or a, a, a car or, you know, a, a, a farm machinery, uh, you know, something that, that, polishes you know runs a washing machine anything Mm -hmm. and a lot of those tinkering cultures i think have very good instincts about how you create community and how newcomers to those communities learn these skills um you know a lot of people talk about the apprentice the way that people used to learn trades was through apprenticeship um and people like, you know, Laven Wenger have made a made an academic career out of documenting the situated, you know, situated cognition of how people um, come to understand new things, that it's rarely formal, formal education. Now, certainly people, you know, get degrees and, and are smart about things. But a lot of times when you go to a new job, you really don't know how to do the job until you start to participate in the community first as a newcomer. And then you, you kind of get closer to where the action is. You're given more tasks. And, you know, anytime we can create those kinds of experiences within school, um, I think it's a good thing. I'm not one to, to say, well, school is old fashioned. We're just going to throw it away because mm-hmm. that's where the kids are. You know, you can't, you can't say I'm walking away from schools because, you know, we owe it to the next generation to fix this kind of um, strange idea that we've built up only in the last century. You know, this sort of standardized education model is not that's that's the thing that's new. Mm. Yeah. Um, I agree. I, I, I uh, as you were talking about, um, you said the thing about. Uh, washing machine parts um, in what you were saying. And I was, I was actually uh, one of the examples that I was talking about, uh, or I was thinking about as you were talking in relation to uh, that kind of ingenuity, not being um, prototypically American by any means is uh, I was watching something about Cuba recently. And, and uh, they were talking about the, um, the, 
postcard of Cuba that most people know being those classic cars. And I think that uh, growing up when I saw those pictures of Cuba, I always assumed that those were original engines in those cars. Um, and really interestingly, the, the, um, this story was talking a little bit about how, um, a lot of those engines are made out of recycled, some of them, um, many of them recycled Japanese car parts, many of them recycled um, appliances. So they're built, oh. like you were saying, they're blind, <laughs> right. building out of washing machine parts and other things. Um, and just really ingenious kind of ways of putting them together. And then, of course, they care a lot about the uh, the body and the, the form factor, as, as us uh, nerds might call it. Um, so, uh, so I love that example and, uh, well, I guess, I guess I ask about, um, you know, your family and, and, uh, your dad is a self-taught mechanic because one of the thing, one of the ways that you and I connected early on is, um, that I think we both believed in and kept hearing over and over, um, professionals in this space who said, you know, my, my introduction to engineering, uh, STEM, however, however we want to look at it, uh, was taking things apart as a kid and, uh, opening, as you said, opening the black box. And, and, um, we connected on that early on because, you know, at the time we were both involved with, um, programs that still did some sort of basic, um, uh, computing education and, and some, some basic understanding of, of how these machines work, mm-hmm. um, which somehow we've, we've really gotten away from, I think, because of the obsession with, um, with learning to code. Um, and, and I wonder if you can reflect on that a little bit and just, and, um, I guess, I guess, you know, my ideal is to have you uh, defend my case that we need to continue to let kids break stuff apart and and put it back together. But um, but how do you how do you feel about that? So I, I think this idea that that we have to do one or the other is crazy. It's based on the idea that there's some scarce time. There's like 10 minutes during the day when we can do something really creative. And it's like, well, wait a second. Let's question that. You know, if, if people tell me, I, I, I talk to schools all the time and they say, we don't have enough time for projects. We don't have enough time to let the kids do something. So, so let's make a curriculum that works in 32 minutes. And it's like, well, wait a second. If the problem is time, let's fix that problem. Let's, let's tackle that problem. How can we create more time during the day? Um, where, where kids can do these things, they can code and take apart electronics. Maybe there are some, you know, introductory classes where they get to do all of these things and then they can choose which path to follow. Um, you know, some kids might do coding for nine weeks. Some may do it for nine years. And how do we create a, a, a school where that's possible? Um, that takes creativity on the part of leadership. It takes people who are willing to say, to question the unquestionable, you know, the bell schedule and the bus schedule and, you know, these, oh, we, we must have 17 periods a day. Well, mm-hmm. why? You know, so I, I think that when I, 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 meet, I meet teachers and I meet schools who have done these things, I say to them, well, how did you do it? And they were like, well, we just did it. 
You know, so in the preface to the second edition, we kind of went through the lessons learned in the last five years. And one of them was schools can change. That people tell you all the time, schools can't change. It's impossible. They're big institutions. It's impossible. Never, never, never until it happens. And there are thousands of schools all over the world who said, we're going to do something different. And they sat down and they made it happen. And there's no framework. There's no seven point plan that makes that happen. It's dedicated people who, who care about the future of education, who care about the kids who are in the school today, uh, not, you know, a five year plan and they do it, you know? So I, I, I think that arguing about coding verses mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is a red herring. And I, I, you know, I, I reject that argument. So, so there. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's also really, um, I mean, you saw it work in your education at UCLA from what it sounds like, right? This was, you know, um, in the sense that it wasn't either or you had to do all of them and, and understand, um, while there was a moment to specialize at a certain point, it sounds like, um, you had to understand all the disciplines in order to understand where you fit in to that broader picture. You know, some of the perspectives. So, you know, when I talk about the things I've learned along the way, generation, yes, really opened my eyes. And I'm sure you see it working with kids in the mouse program, how different people really are and how different everyone's experience is and how desperately kids want to be needed and wanted. And they want to make a difference in the world. They want to make a difference in their world, the world that they show up in every day. And when you give them opportunities to, 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 be someone important to to be someone that a teacher can look to and say, "How does this work? I don't understand." They change, and I I hadn't really thought about that because, like I said, I didn't think much about my own experience of learning. I was a good student. When you're a good student, school tells you you're smart. You get reinforced in a very in a very uh, kind of single minded way that benefits you and benefits school and everyone else who falls outside of that of that Venn diagram gets a short shrift. And I never thought about those other people mm. until I had experiences that made me think about other people. And, you know, I think when when you're good at school, you have to be really, really careful, especially careful when you're prescribing things that schools should do, because Everyone looks at stuff through their own lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it can be really dangerous when you think, well, I learned this way. So therefore, if I just explain everything the way I understand it, everyone's going to understand. Well, wrong doesn't work that way. Um, and so you have to figure out ways where everyone can have those aha moments and and figure out what makes them tick and um Explore things that no one has ever explored before. Maybe something no one thinks is important, but it's important to you. And make sure that kids, you know, are having a good experience and we're not just fooling around. So all of that is 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 a lot of work, but doable. Yep. Yep. Can you just coming back to um, you mentioned Jen Yes, and I just want to make sure that we. Uh... Uh, probably say what that is huh? describe yeah <laughs> describe our our uh the the stuff that comes up i try to back up and just make sure that nobody's left off um so uh what is gen yes and and um where are they now so Generation Yes is a is a healthy nonprofit. 
Um, I, I left around the time I was writing the Invent to Learn book. I was president of Generation Yes for about uh, t- 10 years previous to that. And Gen Yes was started by uh, Dennis Harper, who was one of the first educators going around the world evangelizing computer use in schools. Hmm. He's worked in hundreds of countries. He was a teacher who would go to Kazakhstan for a year and then go to Africa and work in you know different countries in Africa. And as he developed the the bringing computers to schools, he noticed that when he had when he taught students how to use the computers and then the students helped teach the teachers, it worked a thousand times better than trying to teach the teachers how to use it and hoping that they use them in the classrooms. Yeah. And he developed that into this sort of methodology and model he called Generation Yes. And um, he, when he came back to the United States, he started this nonprofit and started working with schools. And um, I came on about you know, I don't know, 10 years after that. And we worked in a lot of schools and we created some really interesting models. Um, and that's where, I, you know, I first heard about mouse doing doing similar kinds of things. And, um, you know, the, the, the benefit to students was just amazing. I mean, you, 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 I know you would believe the testimonials that you get from parents who said, this saved my kid's life. You know, from students you meet after five years and say, that experience was why I showed up every day. Mm-hmm. And it's it's simple. It's like when kids show up at school, they do better in school. When they feel needed, when they feel that they're a part of a community that they have a responsibility for, that they're listened to, they do better in school. And look, it's not that coding is magical, but it's a really powerful way for kids to feel connected to, to something that's powerful. And you can't you can't do that empowerment to kids. You can't, you know, you can't say, oh, technology is so empowering. Technology and computer programming and things like that are empowering because kids are doing powerful things. When you're doing powerful things that other people can look at and talk to you about and you can talk about it, you find your voice. You find out who you are as a person. And that's the outcome. Not, you know, not coding all by itself. Yeah. I love that. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more with what you, what you just <laughs> well, said. Well, explain mouse. I mean, you you've done this work too. Yeah. Well, I I, I can remember at a time um, in my early years at Mouse. I remember, you know, it was it the the idea of. Um, of kids doing some of the sort of fundamental IT that was necessary in schools mm-hmm. as being an entry point to um, deeper, interesting things in technology and engineering was actually on the decline because um, because the perspective on what then was looked at as a very sort of CTE focused um, approach, you know, is very sort of uh, jobs oriented was also on the decline. And so I remember, um, 
I remember making that case to districts and all kinds of folks to say, like, no, you really you need to understand it as a stepping stone to much deeper things and um, and hitting that wall over and over. And then I remember uh, seeing you and Dennis at a conference and and feeling like I had finally before I knew what Gen Yes was. Um, I we found felt each other. Finally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know what vindicated, you know, it was like um, so. So I'm I'm right with you in so many ways. I want to make sure we talk about um, the book. So Invent to Learn has been a huge success for you um, and for K-12 education and all kinds Thank of you. folks. Uh, you know, uh, one of the I, I always whenever I'm talking to somebody who has written a book, I um, tend to scan their reviews on Amazon. Um, one of the the great short ones that I uh, saw about the book is it's the most useful book I've read all year, which uh, <laughs> like one, that. one sentence review, I don't think could be more flattering than, uh, than that, especially for um, given the nature of this book. So two questions. One is um, you and Gary Steger wrote this book, um, mm-hmm. Invent to Learn. It has um, been on the shelf for five or six years now. Right. Um, and you just introduced a second edition. Yes. Um, two, twofold question. One is, what did you both set out to do when you wrote Invent to Learn? And then what's new about the new edition? Um, so the original intent of Invent to Learn was to kind of build a bridge between the maker movement and and educators. Um, and not a one-way bridge. We're not like saying, here's all this magical technology, teachers do this. Um, it, it was a two-way street because, you know, when we would go to maker fairs, makers would tell us over and over again that school wasn't a place where they learned. And they were like, look at all this stuff I can do, but I didn't learn it in school. Mm. School didn't care about what I want, what I wanted to do. And, you know, that's, that's okay. Not, you know, not everybody is going to have a perfect uh, experience at school. But what really surprised us were the parents who said things like, look at my kid, they're, they're programming, they're building robots. I can see they're learning, but every night we pull them away from this and we cry over worksheets. What's wrong with my kid? And it's like, oh, no, that's the wrong question. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with school? You know, it's not, it's not a crazy question to say, why can't school be more like Maker Faire? Why can't it be this glorious explosion of all kinds of different things happening where people, people's interests are nurtured and they find things that are important and, and you know, try new stuff and, and some of it doesn't work, but we try again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this sort of excitement and passion. Um, there's no reason why that can't be, be in schools. And we also know from, from hundreds of years of people from John Dewey, Piaget, Maria Montessori, you know, Loris Malaguzzi, people saying, we know how to do this. We know how to make schools. Deborah Meyer, Ted Sizer, all, you know, Sylvia Chard showed us the answer and said, this is how you create schools where students' passions can be nour- nourished. Not in a, oh, let's all discover the Pythagorean theorem kind of way. Not some airy fairy flowers in your hair kind of hippy dippy barefoot children, you know, school. But, but passionate people passionate about learning, and you know, we know how to do this. So we could we could write about how these 
tried and true ideas fit with this modern technology and build the bridge both ways. So part of the book is a recapitulation of the powerful ideas that have been around for hundreds of years, that people learn by experience. Piaget wrote a book, said uh, uh, knowledge, uh, knowledge is, co- is a consequence of experience. People like Seymour Papert, who said that the best way to learn something is to express it uh, either physically or, or verbally or you know, in other ways, to make something that you can share with a community, a community that cares about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideas of, like the project approach, um, that work and, but have sort of been forgotten in the last frenzy of test taking mania that's, that's, you know, taken over schools all over the world. And there are teachers who've never seen a PBL classroom. There are teachers who, who, who don't know that this is something, you know, uh, tried and true. So we wrote that part of the book, and then we also wrote about how to use these tools and technology in a constructive way, in a creative way, not to where the someone delivers a box that says, here's maker in a can, <laughs> all kids follow the rules, and they will make something, I'm making air quotes, you know, as if touching stuff is what making is about. Mm-hmm. Making is about making sense of the world. And we have to be, be careful when we adopt new technologies to make sure that we, they align with what we really believe about learning. And so we wrote a book that, that it doesn't have step-by-step recipes. It doesn't say the 17, you know, here's the list of stuff to buy. And yet people find it useful. And it was like kind of a warm and fuzzy feeling that people were, were accepting of, of this kind of, of message. And I think it reflects the yearning that a lot of teachers do when they look at their classrooms and say, this could be better for kids. And so tell us about the second edition. So the second edition, I mean, part of it is obvious. URLs break, stuff gets old. <laughs> um, you know, I, when, I, when, we op- when, we, when we look back at the first edition, it was like for microcontrollers, we talked about Arduino. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. And it's like, oh, my God, look at all. There's too much. There's almost too much to talk about Mm now. Um, So we really had to. It was almost harder to do the second edition because there's so much more available now. We really tried to work hard to to winnow down to the to the to the best examples, the best of breed kinds of things, the things that are worth spending your money on. Um, And, you know, so so. The, the resources are almost, you know, 99% new. Hmm. Uh, if it's not new, I had to fix the URLs because people change their URLs all the time. It's so annoying. Um, and, you know, we, we tried to, we added more examples. We added um, more, you know, stories from teachers saying how this changed their classrooms. We also talked a little bit about how it changes teachers' lives. You know, teachers come back to something and feel that passion again and say, you know, okay, good. (laughs) I'm ready for a new decade. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm ready. I'm ready for the next challenge of my career. Um, And this is something that I want to pour my personal passion into. Um, So that was that was very, very flattering, you know, that people would come up to us and say, uh, I read this book and it was like you were telling me things that I knew already, but I just hadn't really put into words. Um, and I think that, that 
teachers teachers are amazing. I mean, the lesson of of the of the last five years has been there are educators all, all over the world doing making miracles happen, and nobody's writing about them and nobody's talking about mm-hmm. them. They all feel like they're the only ones, and you know they're alone. And the power of social media and the internet to bring out those amazing examples, I think, is is only just begun. Honestly, mm. agreed. What do you say to um, the issue that folks have with maker education that it's only the privileged few that can access it? And I think that that's um, perpetuated in part by the cost of things like, you know, these electronics kits and um, Lego robotics is a popular enrichment tool that um, parents see at schools. But part of the problem we know is that, um, you know, a kid who is, um, you know, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, you know, five blocks from my home, can't necessarily go to school to an enrichment program where they're using $230 robotics kits and then go home and feel supported uh, as, you know, in a STEM identity, right? So, um, so there's, there's that gripe that, that it's the privileged few, but, but um, do you have thoughts about that? Well, sure. I mean, that is obviously one of the points of invent to learn is trying to tease out what the what the pedagogy is, what the, the 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 classroom climate needs to look like. You know, we there's a chapter in the book called "Shaping the Learning Environment," and it's not about buying stuff. That's a different chapter. You know, sh- you want to shape the learning environment for intellectual uh, risk taking and invention. You want to have kids feel validated in the things that they want to do, and if that's writing a poem, that's a really good thing. Um, we should we should find out how to make that the 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 center of of a, a kid's life at school. Um, you know, people people I think want it both ways. Though um, you can't say that the technology doesn't matter, and also say that we want to do have modern learning because uh, modern learning is with technology. Uh, modern jobs are with technology. Like you said, you know, back when career and technology education was like on a downswing, well, now it's back up on an upswing. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not, um, you know, we're going to teach everyone how to be a plumber. You have to you have to learn computers. Sometimes the kids who are taking the non-academic classes are having a much more experiential learning, um, you know, ex- experience than the kids who are, are in AP physics, who, who aren't touching stuff, you know, mm-hmm. who aren't doing experiments because it's too expensive or the somebody took the set of springs or, you know, <laughs> you hear all this stuff all the time. Um, so I think that computers have a special place um, in this sort of drive to, to modernize education because they're what Seymour Papert uh, they said is a, is a protein machine. You can use them for, for almost anything. You can do math. You can also make music. You can uh, analyze large data sets. You can, you know, um, connect to, to physics experiments. You can use it to, you know, uh, for artificial intelligence experiments. You can do all these things with a computer that you can't do with paper and pencil. 
And we don't value that because our curriculum was invented at a time when the only way, the well, only technology available was in the classroom was paper and pencil and blackboards. Mm-hmm. And the curriculum is, is not immutable. You know, it's not set in stone. This was decided a hundred years ago. And, you know, if we're not, t- if, if the biology we teach hasn't changed in 25 years, we're missing a lot of biology. If the mathematics we change hasn't changed in 300 years, we're missing a lot of mathematics. And who, and that's, who's that detrimental to us as a society? Mm. Certainly the kids, you know, I think it, it handcuffs teachers to an antiquated curriculum that they don't believe in themselves, you know, and, and the system pushes it forward as if we have no choice. I think we do have a choice. What do you think? um, Actually, let me, let me rephrase. What do you hope if um, folks take nothing else away from invent to learn or this, this push um, you know, sort of this this instantiation of this thing we've been talking about for a hundred years. If people take nothing else away from it, um, what do you think is the 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 most essential? Well, I'm going to cheat and say a couple of things. <laughs> one one is, you know, Gary Steger uh, has has been saying this for for years. Less us, more them. We need to think about education as being about what the what the students do, not about what teachers do in the classroom. Um, teaching does not equal learning, uh, so that's a very powerful message. Message that I think people can think about in, in in great you know in a lot more depth than we were able to go in into the book to use it as a lens to look at their own practice um, and to think about the way that you know school runs. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, I would hate for this to be a fad. I would hate for it to be like, oh, makerspace, that was so 2018. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're on to AI or whatever the latest, latest thing is. I think that if people look at the maker movement as a way to uh, evaluate the kinds of things that they're doing in the classroom, to look at it through a lens of what do I believe about learning? And what about making in the classroom supported that? And what didn't? You know, I bought this robot that was supposed to teach coding or something, and the kids played with, with it for 20 minutes, and it's done. That doesn't mean that the maker movement should be thrown out, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that the, the, it should be a both and. It, we should look at AI and say there's two ways that AI could, could, be, could, could go into schools. One is AI used as surveillance and, and uh, pushing kids through a system that they have no say in mm-hmm. because we're guessing what the next right thing is for them to do. Or AI in the hands of children used as a powerful tool to explore the kinds of questions that we're facing as a society today. You know, uh, how does a driverless car work? How does, how does an algorithm decide uh, what's a correct answer or not? Putting the children in charge of those things is a very different stance than just saying, AI in the classroom, go. Um, and I think that that discrimination, that ability to, to look carefully at new uh, things that are being flung at teachers all the time and having, having, that, having a, a good discrimination filter based on 
what do I believe about learning uh, would be my my hope that comes out of people reading Invent to Learn. Not that they go out and buy a 3D printer. The second edition of Invent to Learn is now um, you can buy it on Amazon. You can yeah. uh, find it all kinds of places. Where else, if people want to uh, follow along, um, learn more about you, about uh, Gary Steger's work, who we haven't really had a uh, w- one day we'll get, I hope, get him to come and join the show. Um, uh, where can people follow you? So um, the website inventtolearn.com is a companion site for the book. Uh, it has all of the resources in the book. So you can look through like our recommendations for software and things to do in the classroom. Um, it also has list of professional development events. Gary and I run different workshops uh, around the country, around the world. Gary's flying off tomorrow to keynote something in Australia. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Texas, we're doing four days in Texas, four, four one-day workshops all across Texas. Uh, that's on the Invent to Learn website. That's April 2019. I, if people are listening to this beyond that, mm-hmm. sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also run a summer event called Constructing Modern Knowledge. That's in its 12th year now. So it was happening before the maker movement. It'll probably be happening after the maker movement. Um, it's And that's at constructingmodernknowledge.com. Uh and that's that's a place where teachers can take off their teacher hats and really feel what it feels like to be a learner. And we we bring in like 50 cases of materials to just let teachers have the time to think about how learning really happens. Um, and the last thing I'll say is as a result of writing Invent to Learn, a lot of educators came to us and said, this is what I do in my classroom. I think I could write a book. So we became publishers. So we have a publishing company at cmkpress.com. We've published uh, 12 books now and more on the way, mostly written by educators talking about their practice in the classroom. So uh, the Invent to Learn Guide to Fun by Josh Berker has projects that he's tried and tested in his classroom that work with all sorts of inexpensive technology uh, everything from cardboard pinball machines to making, you know, radios out of wire. Nice. It's, it's quite a, it's a, it's a terrific book. Um, and th- there's a, a new books coming out. Um, and a, a lot of really, really smart teachers have poured their hearts and soul into these pages. And I hope people take a look at cmkpress.com. Outstanding. Sylvia, I can't wait. Um, to stay in touch and and hear what what comes next because i just hearing you talk about um even just uh the the uh the publishing that you're doing i can see all kinds of things on the horizon and ways to continue to kind of uh, spread the good word but but more importantly to empower um you know and support uh educators and families who are doing extremely creative work uh, in, 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 um, in supporting young people and often just don't have, um, great resources curated by, uh, really thoughtful and 
uh, and incredibly experienced people. And um, so uh, I'm grateful there is an event to learn and that you guys are, are working to, uh, to broaden its impact. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining. I'm uh, really excited that we got to talk and uh, I hope we get to do it again soon. Well, thank you. Your questions were were uh, unusual, the, the, so I had a I had a really a really good time talking to you, Mark. Anytime. Great. Thanks, Sylvia. Okay. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M A Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 